consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. We're giggling because we just recorded a little video to send out to everyone and we were making each other laugh in the video. So sorry about it. We have a very strict half hour in which to accomplish (laughs) what we need to. And we started (laughs) off by just gabbing and wasting time. And somewhere in there, we came up with an idea. And so we're like, okay, let's do the idea real quick. And then now it's like, oh my gosh, record the dish really fast. So Sticking. Uh, so what's been going on with you lately, girl? Well, you're bearing the lead. What? Happy anniversary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we literally I forgot. forgot. That's I, the second time today that I forgot. I texted her today and I was like, oh, my God, it's our seven year anniversary. And we like completely forgot. Like usually <laughs> we try to like plan something for the podcast in celebration of our seventh anniversary. But... <laughs> and then you kindly informed me that the seven year anniversary present is copper and wool. Copper and wool, which did get me thinking, has anyone ever made a vocal out of copper? Uh... <laughs> like, do you? Th- I'm not like into metals. <laughs> So I don't know, like someone's probably screaming, like that would never work. Copper doesn't vibrate. I'm just Googling. That it just really reminds cool. me of the Statue of Liberty. Like, I know. Would have would a it vocal turn... that looks like the Statue of Green? Liberty. <laughs> I think it probably would. Well, I keep seeing stuff about brass. Are brass and copper the same thing? I don't know. Specifications, material, copper, color, silver. Wait, so are most vocals, like when you see silver lined, is it copper and then it's lined with other metals? Do I look like a metalsmith? The pipe made of copper, silver plated. I think vocals are made of copper. Stop it. I mean, I've just Googled it for two seconds, so I am an authority on the subject. But I feel like our listeners should both buy us a brand new vocal to show their thanks for seven years of podcasting. So... Um, I will take, you know, really anything. Uh, Putting it in order. <laughs> yes. If you'd like to just give me a budget, 
I'm happy to find something that suits my interests. We'll send you some links. How's that? Yes. Yes. Okay. So just, just reach out. Here's our Christmas list. Be generous. <laughs> Be generous. <laughs> yeah. You told me this morning and then I immediately forgot until we just recorded. I mean, we're like one of those married couples who's been together for so long that they literally forget their anniversary. It's just podcast version. Well, but okay, you have actually been with your husband for a billion years. Have you forgotten your anniversary? Um, I don't forget the date, but I always forget how many years we've been together. So we got married in t- 2004 and we got engaged in 2003 and we started dating in 2000 wait no oh six is when we got married (laughs) engaged oh five dating oh four that's right so this april will be 20 years of dating and 18 years of marriage wow which is pretty weird for someone who's not even 40 yet but i was i don't know young i thought i knew everything it's so funny because when you're that age you're like I can't believe people would say we're too young. They they don't know us. And now, like my age, I'm like, you were too young. <laughs> you got married before your frontal lobe was fully formed. 1,000%. <laughs> 1,000%. But, you know, it all worked out. We're not sick of each other yet. So no. the ultimate friend of the podcast, Chris Wilson, who just has to listen to us scream constantly. And do our taxes for this podcast, which neither of us still understand at all how it works. Oh, my God. So happy seven-year anniversary, girl. Happy seven-year anniversary. I'm glad we celebrated by showing our ignorance about how vocals are constructed (laughs) here with a combined six degrees in double read playing and seven years of podcasting. I'm glad that's how this all went down. I blame the educational system. Yeah, I never had vocal metallics. 101. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, so how's your semester uh, wrapping up? Okay. So my semester is wrapping up beautifully. It's fabulous. Here's the thing. Uh, I decided three years ago that I was going to begin this pet project. Like we have this big, like most school of musics do, holiday gala concert mm. uh, at the conclusion of the semester. And I was like, this is a missed opportunity. We need to be raising scholarship funds for our yeah. student. And I propose that we turn this entire concert into a scholarship fundraiser. Sounds very small and very uh, low maintenance. (laughs) So I somehow have like become responsible for this silent auction, which at this point has, I think, 67 items. That's amazing. And we do concessions and those are donated. And so I'm in charge of securing those donations. And we're doing a ornament tree where you take an ornament off the tree and that supports a student. And so <gasps> like, it's a lot. And it's a really good idea. When you do a silent auction, like you have to write to get the donations, you have to pick up the donations, you have yep. to advertise <laughs> the donations. And then once it's over that you have to thank the donors, of course. Mm-hmm. And then there's taxes over the person who bought the item, the person who donated the item, the university foundation, like 
it's a lot and I know I'm martyring myself right now but can I just like get like a little like wow that sounds like a lot and uh, no but it really does sound like a lot (laughs) are you sitting in your office cutting out like ornaments to put on the tree and like well not cutting out we did purchase them but I'm putting oh I got it it's not like paper with no we bought the the balls like the ornament balls and then we got these WSU stickers and so we're decorating them to be like cougar stickers and Go kooks. Go kooks. So it's it's fabulous and we've raised a bit of money, but um it's it's just a lot to juggle as yeah. like a faculty member. But it's wow. so gratifying. Like it's like a really fun concert and event, and at the end you feel like you really did something. But so my my semester is wrapping up like complete chaos. But on December third, I'm gonna be like the happiest individual on planet earth (laughs) like finals week schminals week who cares after that how's your semester wrapping up you're in the last week of classes i sure am uh it's good it's a little hectic but it's good it's holiday gig season now officially we had our first one on sunday and i have one this weekend and then i'm actually gonna play nutcracker this season which is fabulous love nutcracker i will never turn down playing nutcracker i did turn on playing messiah because i was like "Mm, (laughs) yeah i'm doing the nutcracker with the mobile ballet this season which is the i think the first year they're doing it with live musicians which is so awesome nothing puts me in the holiday spirit more than playing the nutcracker like i would do it for free honestly i would do it's it for so free. good you know i found an arrangement okay so well let me get into the rest of it and then i'll tell yes. you <laughs> um <laughs> and so the oboe studio at usm is putting together a fundraiser for honduras oboe project education um we have a personal connection with honduran oboists we've had many Honduran oboists come through the program, including Yuri Alvarez, who is the um, head of that organization, and Cesar Mateo Martinez, and Julissa Sabat, and like all these people have come through USM, the oboe program, and so we are giving back to them. We are um, uh, putting together a basket, and people are drawing tickets to uh win the basket so we're actually parking ourselves outside at lunchtime for three days this week to sell tickets and so far so good we've um had a really successful first day and we're also performing at our local grocery store uh in december doing some uh oboe and english horn christmas carols uh, to raise money from the community of Hattiesburg for hope. So, um, and I also found an arrangement of the Nutcracker for oboe and English horn. That sounds reedy, but I love that you're doing a fundraiser. Like, look at us fundraising. Like, I know. Wow. Just so charitable. <laughs> <laughs> No, that is awesome. And your students are so wonderful for doing that.
ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are so delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Julia Argande, Principal Bassoon of the Nashville Symphony. Welcome, Julia. How are you? We are so great talking to you. It's super nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I would love to start by asking you how you started playing the bassoon. I am the daughter of two musicians, so it's not exactly unusual to have a third musician in the family. But I was very lucky that my parents chose to emigrate, to, to move basically from Buenos Aires. I was born there in Argentina to Montreal. So I was raised in Montreal and that's a place where you find two amazing public schools where I was fortunate to go. It's, the first school is called Le Plateau and the second one is Ecole uh, Joseph-François Perrault. It's, it's public but it's concentrated in music. So when you are a kid, you learn how to read and at the same time you you learn how to read music, so it's completely natural. And that's I, awesome. It's, and there are not that many schools like that, but mm-hmm. even in my high school, that was my first experience touring internationally with that high school orchestra. So I now realize now living in the U.S. the chance that I had because it was completely obvious to me when I was growing up, but not anymore here. I I don't see opportunities like that anywhere here. So I started on the piano in, in uh, my mom is a harpsichord player. So I was practicing on the harpsichord at home. And then when I had to pick an instrument in high school, there was no piano available. So I had to pick an instrument from the, from the wind family. And like everyone else, I wanted to play the flute, but everyone wants to play the flute. And I remember the person who introduced the bassoon, they wouldn't play it. It was just introduced visually. Hmm. I just remember asking, is it an instrument just for guys? Because it seems so big. 
And they're like, I don't know, there are, there are females that play the bassoon, but they didn't sell it that well. No one was in line to try the bassoon, like no one. So then I'll, I'll dedicate this story to my mom who's so tired of hearing it. But the true story is that I came back with a flute home and back then I had a pet rabbit that was free in the house. And I started to play whatever notes I could play. And that poor thing just was terrified, just ran behind a plant, was shaking. It was like, well, maybe it's not a good idea because really she's not going to take it. So, of course, like what a, the best news for the, the directors that they gave me a bassoon just to try. And that same week I had a conversation with my dad, who, who is a classical guitar player who told me, well, if you want opportunities later, it was pretty obvious that I wanted to become a musician then because I, I was seven year, years old and I was drawing in pieces of paper when they asked me, what do you want to do later? I was drawing a, an audience with little heads and I was on stage. At the time I was, I was drawing myself with a guitar because my dad was a guitar player, but really I just needed an audience. So my dad suggested to think about the oboe and the bassoon being beautiful instrument. And if I wanted to, to have a career, it would be a, not easier, but there is less intense competition. And I considered that. And with my mom, I went to hear a quintet performance and each one of them did introduce their, their instrument. And I finally said, okay, I'll try it. I came back home with the instrument. I played a note, like everyone would play a note. It, it was ugly. My dad was laughing, telling me that I sounded like a boat. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> but then my, my same rabbit ran and, and just stayed under my chair for the entire time. So when I saw that, I was, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to pick this, not because I really love it, but because my rabbit approved. And then soon after that, I really did develop this incredible connection with the bassoon because originally I connected so much with my home town. Like I'm an absolute lover of tango. So having been in Montreal for my entire life, a way to connect from my, my own culture was to listen constantly to tango. So I would put play and stop and and play on top of the bandoneon, on top of Piazzolla himself. So really early on, I would play four or five hours a day, just tango music. So I connected with the bassoon immediately because I, I, used, I used that instrument to continue connecting with, with the music that I loved. So really it was an immediate um, bond that I had with the bassoon. That's amazing. So it sounds like from early on, you knew you wanted to pursue music, but can you talk us through getting um, serious about the bassoon and deciding that you wanted to pursue it in college and um, college auditions, deciding where you were going to do your training, that type of thing? Yeah, of course. And I think that will reflect on many of us who are not from the U.S. There is a there is a way of doing things here. And when you grew up in the US, people seem to be very aware that there are certain schools that are very good, that there are certain schools that are free. Like there's a path 
And I see that even my young students know exactly what that path is. Just remember that when you're not from here, that path is not that obvious. So even if it's the, the country next to this one, and I grew up in Montreal, which is artistically very developed, but it's still, it's still, it is an island, and it still feels that it's very removed from what's going on here when you are 15, 16. You don't know. And I was lucky to have a teacher who went to Curtis. So he's a, the assistant principal in the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. He is from Montreal as well, Mathieu Arel. So when I started the conservatory, I was 15. And from the start, he was telling me about all these anecdotes from when he attended Curtis. So in my mind, there was Curtis and nothing else because I wasn't exposed to anything else school-wise. And when came the time to audition, I was uh, very aware of what Curtis was, but not just because, I mean, he, he had amazing opportunities. Yes, it was free, but he never really let me know, or maybe I, I didn't grasp that, how hard it was to get in. So me being completely naive, not arrogant, just naive, I... I was, I had cert, a certain talent and, and I was around a lot of other people with a lot of talent. So it wasn't out of the norm either because those who went to my schools were also going to the conservatory, a lot of them, and we were trained very young and very well. So that passion was shared around me. It wasn't anything extravagant. So I remember a conversation with my teacher, Mathieu, and he said, you would be stupid not to audition to Curtis. And the deadline was just like the next day after that to apply. And he used the word, in, not in English, but he used a word that I remember, like he never, it wasn't insulting. He wasn't insulting me, but it was that word that shook me. It was like, ooh, he must be serious. Otherwise he would never pick that word. I went to the, we needed recommendation letters. I, everything was late, last minute. Wow. But I decided to do it and to tell my mom, I'm going to try because I want to practice to do that audition. In my mind, I knew that if I had told him I want to go and try to get into Curtis, she would say no because she didn't want me to leave. So I, I decided to present it as I will go practice because I want to get in the following year. But in my mind, when I did go to the audition, it was the only school that I tried I didn't do the circuit that I see people do, like I'm going to do a million school and see what happened. Genuinely, I can say that I went to that audition knowing that I would get it. Not because that, just because it was this evidence. My, my teacher went there. Now it's my turn because I didn't know how hard it was because I didn't speak English. So when I showed up, I sat there and I couldn't really interact with anyone because I didn't speak the language. So I didn't. I wasn't, I could see the moms and the kids terrified because it's so, the, the level, this is the one person. So why would you even think that it's going to be you? But when I played, I was completely removed from that stress. And I happened to play in front of my future teacher who I didn't know, who is Japanese, not knowing that he was born in Argentina as well. 
And when he was asking me to play, he was like, can you play Mozart? And I, I was answering like, who? Because in my mind is Mozart. Mozart meant nothing. So I, I had Billy Short in my audition who was watching the audition, who had taken some type of French translating to me what he, my, my, my Tukao wanted to hear. And then at the end, he said, play whatever you want, play any etude that you want. And I decided to play, to play Piazzolla, which I had, as I mentioned earlier, I played Piazzolla five hours a day for the last five years. I was very comfortable playing. And plus, I didn't know he was Argentinian as well. So I, I left the room. I know that I presented the most, the most genuine side of me, the, how I connected with music and I just went home and it happened to, I, I was picked that, that year, but I, I did not know until the following year when I was helping people run the audition and I was bringing people into the room. And then I saw this process, how hard and completely, it was a miracle that I was picked, but I, I didn't have the nerves just because I grew up in Montreal and no one was talking about Curtis, about any, any other schools. You just do your own thing, and that that aspect that was completely removed, and that I had one person who every single lesson told me about about his experience, which made it be completely natural, helped me just normalize everything. And when I went to the audition, it just happened to to be a good day. So I'm super grateful for that whole process. That's so interesting because. Um... It reminds me of, you know, if there's the audition, right, that is a scary, nerve-wracking thing. But then there's the second layer, which is the context of the audition, your previous feelings about the institution or the teacher or all of that baggage and context was completely removed for you. Right. Because I never had anyone saying, like, it's going to be so hard. It's so hard. Right. So when you go there and you see those faces, they know it's so hard. So that that you can't. And plus, you're a kid. You at that point, you don't have the tools to deal with that. So you either are naive to a certain extent, or you were told by your entire life how almost impossible it is. And then your parents probably, if you are from this country, your parents are like, please, can you get into the one or two schools that are free? Because otherwise I will love you less. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm already telling my daughter, please. (laughs) But it, it is a reality. People go there with a baggage that I didn't have. I didn't Mm -hmm. know about how expensive schools are here. I didn't know about how many schools you have to audition to in, in order to, to and then negotiate all of that game. I didn't know and I continue to not know. And, and that saving the mind from those aspects is crucial. And that taught me later to save my mind for other auditions, for other contexts, because really I, I maybe didn't have that much more talent than other people. I was just there kind of with a f- fresh, removed, and, and pure, and pure, it's not pure, it's not that, the other thing. You weren't not... distracted. Yeah, exactly. I just took yeah. it, 
took a picture of my teacher and I said, can you please write something behind it? I will read it only when I'm about to play there. So I just took my people, my the people who had inspired me, who had who had really supported me and I brought them with me and I and I decided this is who I am. I love music, I love tango, I'm coming with with the the inspiration of everyone who supported me before, here I am, and it was just just me playing in, in my living room amplified because now I was in front of Daniel Masukawa and the future principal bassoon of the Met and the future principal, it, it, but I didn't know. It was just the moment. That's really cool. Yeah. And then looking back, it's, it's one of those, you could, I couldn't have, even if I tried now to go back and change something, I wouldn't change a thing. So can you tell us now um, what happened? Maybe tell us a little bit about your growth through Curtis and what you learned from these incredible experiences that you had. And then I would love to hear about how you got to where you are today. Yes. Um, Curtis is a, a school where they didn't tell you the first day. Like, look around, you'll see those people in your professional world later you don't know who and what position and it is it is true you see them everywhere and the most amazing positions later and it's a small school is the pressure is very high and the opportunities that we get there are fantastic so thanks to the mind for only keeping the good things after like, after leaving it seems that everything is like wow i, I remember the first bit of Curtis, of course, I was struggling. I I was not the only one in the studio, but I, we were two people not speaking the language there. So you have to you have to take all these classes, and I was falling asleep because I couldn't fly. It's just too much at some point. But then you have the best conductors, the the best soloists, the best teachers, the, surrounded by people who are equally as eager to succeed, which that's a big deal, to have colleagues that are all looking in the same direction and who are all coming from different backgrounds because really what I loved about that school is it's highly international. So we're all coming from from perspectives and way of learning that are very different in that exchange. The, the Russians with their super disciplined way of approaching certain things like the technique and then me coming from another side of the planet and, and we have friends from everywhere and that, that exchange was fantastic because I, I, still, I still remember those conversations that I had, those recitals, those those concerts that I had where I'm thinking, wow, a lot of the time, the level I heard there wasn't replicated that many times in my professional life. It was yeah. very incredible to hear how at a very young age, people can have the maturity to, to see music and, with this, not only skills, but just the complete maturity of, of interpret interpreting music their own way like with their old soul really and that connection that i had with 
my teacher there was very important in my in my path. I had Mathieu Arel in Montreal and Daniel Matuka, of course, in at Curtis. It's four years with each, but four years seeing the same person every week. They become, of course, more than just a teacher. They're they're a, a mentor. You see them play every week in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and that's who you grew up looking up to and and then they become a friend and you see them live their life struggle as well with certain things and then we end up we ended up having a very close relationship and then when i graduated i went to certain festivals like pmf and of course you meet more people and and you see your own teachers in other contexts. You see them, my teacher is a superstar in Japan. It's a pretty amazing to see. <laughs> so, so then I went back to Montreal after Curtis for three years. And the thing about a school like Curtis is that all of a sudden you have the, an extra pressure of now people ex expect me to succeed. And there is a double edged like it's a double-edged sword there because of course the skills that they give you the 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 way they teach you what you what you take from Curtis is great but then you also take the pressure and the the other side is like well am I going to be the Curtis failure that didn't win a job in time am I mm -hmm. going to let them down because I went back to Montreal and I'm not the principal bassoon that I, they expected to me to be in this amazing orchestra. Like for a while I struggled mm. because I didn't have all that pride in the, the drive from all of all the other people. I was by myself all of a sudden in my hometown where I grew up. So where I was a kid. So I went back to where I represented myself just with a dream and when i started auditioning i wasn't passing any rounds i, mm. I wasn't doing well at all so it was a very huge contrast between what they had conditioned us to think and then what the reality was later so the clash happens and i'm not the only one from people who come out of that school usually go through that is this very high followed by a very low if wow. this, if the path didn't go exactly like they wanted to be, or just you, you go to Curtis and then you are this principal, blah blah, or soloist, or this right away. So mm -hmm. then you don't know how to deal with that because I was afraid to do competitions because I was thinking, well, if I don't win, I'm gonna have the name of the school attached to me, and I'm not gonna represent it well, and they're gonna expect me to. So it's this spiral of. Well, I should not even try because what if I fail? So for years, I had this, this love and hate relationship. And especially when I was representing myself in Montreal post Curtis, it wasn't wow. The, my, my results in, in auditions were pretty mediocre. And, and then I, I waited to the very end to start competing again, which I loved to do before. I, I was I love competing. 
in, in competitions. And, and when I, I decided, okay, now I just need the money. I didn't have money at all. So I decided to put my name in a competition and I put the foot on stage and I'm like, why did I wait so long? I love doing this and I don't care really what the result is. I just needed something to push me and to be like, okay, I need to separate my, my self-identity with the name of the school, mm. what they expect of us and just do my own thing and, and believe that it's going to be fine. But I had to reconstruct my, my self-esteem and my, my rapport with, with like, confidence in my playing in myself post Curtis. So it took probably three years where I, then after school, I learned how to practice efficiently. And then is when I learned how to really protect my mind after when I was done, like when I needed to really win a job and I needed to be su successful after this limbo, that's where I learned the most really. Like when you're by yourself, surrounded by those who are, again, they're always somebody supporting you and believing in you and teaching you post-school. So, when I grew the most is when I when I touched the lowest and I needed to come back, basically. Can we talk more about that? I I think this is really cool that you're discussing this because I think from the outside, a lot of us could assume, oh, Curtis is the solution. You know, that's all you need and it is a pipeline to success. And so talking about, hey, that comes along with pressure and expectations and a timeline and that type of thing. So I'd love to hear a bit about the work that you did to get yourself out of that and um, yeah, the strategies or the mindsets that you adapted. How does the period after that contrast with what you were experiencing then? I, I like not falling into any predetermined routines. I realized that that also came with, with, neglecting certain areas and when I was practicing and because I was afraid to fail, I always sabotaged something in my preparation to give an explanation to, oh, of course I didn't win because I didn't do, I didn't practice Mozart enough because I don't really like it. So that's why. So I wouldn't touch my ego mm -hmm. for years. I was protecting my mind by really just justifying it, leaving something out in my preparation until I decided, okay, now there's no success if you don't put your ego out there and put it in the side and with absolute humility and you have to be completely humble and you go and you present the best you have in you, but that comes with it. It's, it comes with fear, obviously. So it's so that's so hard. What you're it, describing is so hard. But then, what you know, what you have to present, you know, what your cards are. Then you have to find a way to have a system that is efficient when you practice, and that's what most of us don't have because when we when we do present something in front of our teachers, we, we present the result. And so it's, 
It's so rare that people teach you how to, to get to that result. Like we were always talking, well, this phrasing should be better. You should change this and that. But I needed someone to, to tell me and, and go with me with the process of the result will be fine. I just needed a system that was efficient for me. And, and sometimes it's good to be forced to explore other things. For example, uh, I am a little bit, um, how do you say, kamikaze, kamikaze, like, I don't, I, yeah, I, I take risks, uh, too many risks. So, for example, um, I decided to go on a trip for a month or a month and a half in Europe. I didn't take my bassoon with me, but I decided that I was back into competing. So I put my name in a competition, hadn't done it that much and I put just pieces that I thought I would like to play, just big rounds. So cello music that I had never performed, never practiced. I just think that cello music is a lot of the time better than was written for us. And plus in the final, it's like I'm going to play Piazzolla, so I'm going to play Le Grand Tango, which is for cello. I wrote that not knowing what type of endurance it would take. And then I put my name for for the audition in Washington DC for principal in the opera, which I had never practiced a single opera excerpt in my life. So I left and I was forced to practice without my bassoon. That's how I, I confirmed that whatever I was doing before did not work because I, I did sit so many hours with my bassoon it just was not the right way of approaching it. When I didn't have my bassoon, I was forced to really rethink and practice in different ways without this physical object in my, in my hands. And I realized, well, everything starts from how we conceptualize things. I started singing so much, conducting so much, recording my voice, realizing that my habits on the bassoon are coming from my aesthetics so from my voice, basically how I phrase things. I started fixing my habits. The technique can be practiced away from the bassoon, phrasing, character, tempo, visualization, everything that I needed to do, except for a few things, which endurance, pitch and and even the tongue can be, for me, it can be practiced away from the bassoon. So then when I came back, I'd had a few days to, to practice and memorize all this repertoire. Of course, I, I, it was not realistic. So by the time I performed well in the competition, by, but endurance, why I didn't have time in two weeks to re, reconstruct all my muscles so by i don't know how you call it when when your air goes through your nose and you have mm -hmm. that it was happening in the finals and during the tango because it was so much blowing and that cello music was never ending so i, I experienced that and i didn't know how loud it was i almost quit the stage but i decided well i'm going to finish and see what happens i won that competition oh my god my category and then they they put all all categories together. So I won second after, I think it was piano, me and, and, and strings and voice after. So I, I did great, but because of that thing in my nose, 
I, I had three days before the, the, the audition in Washington. I had only practiced in my head and I was thinking, well, I'm going to practice during three days, which is nothing. But I couldn't because of I needed to let my whatever it was inside my mouth heal. So the first time I heard myself play those excerpts was on stage in front of the jury. Oh, the my office. God. And that's how I confirmed. Of course, I didn't win, but I was doing the three people in the finals. But that game, because I won that competition, I, was, I did so well later, I, I realized, you know what? I'm going to change the entire way of how I approach practicing because mo my better results were when, when I practice away from the bassoon. There's so much you can be doing because your mind is completely focused on one task at the time when there is not a million obstacles because playing the bassoon, you have to think of so many things at the same time. And it's not true that you can fix them. Usually people fix one thing and then you're like, oh, that went better. I'm going to think of the other thing. The other thing went out of the window. So you're like back and forth trying to fix things and it's just completely not efficient. So when I was away from my bassoon, I was doing so much work understanding what I wanted to begin with, because that's, I think that's the biggest issue that people, they don't know what they want to begin with. So they have no signals to give to, I want the bassoon to be my extension, not my bassoon to control me. Mm -hmm. So when I spend so much time just worrying about one aspect at the time, putting my entire focus on that and protecting my mind really, because I'm not hearing myself miss a million times. I'm not getting frustrated. When I get to my seat and I do practice, there's so many things that are already taken care of that I don't have this, this frustrating experience when I practice. I, I'm there just to, to confirm that what I wanted is correct or not, to tweak it, to, 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 to get closer to the goal, but not to start fixing a thousand things and be overwhelmed. I don't want this that experience because I'll need to come back the next day and practice again. So I, I refuse to have a bad experience when I sit with my instrument. So the more I can, I understood that not only I can practice efficiently so many things when, when I'm not sitting on my instrument. So I have so many more hours during the day to do that. So if I want to do dishes and, and pre practicing, I can, and, also, I realized I can also, with, with visualization and with other tools, I can also decide how I'm going to feel and practice how I'm going to feel for important for performances. So that too can be rehearsed. Everything can be rehearsed. And that's mostly a way. So I started having a much better relationship with, with performing with practicing and with taking care of my mind, which that made a huge difference because that, that toxic spiral I was in and the blah, blah that is going on in my head for so many years stopped the day I decided it would stop. And then I, of course it comes back in little glimpse here and there, but I know how to stop it and I, I know how to, to reverse it in a way that I will never go back to what it was. It's once you know what's in the other side when you decide 
to have a, a better dialogue in your mind, you never want to go back to what it was. So have you noticed that when we do play and we're in the zone and it's so easy, regardless what we're doing, it can be the hardest concerto and you're in that zone where you're in the moment, there's nothing else that matters and you're playing as well as you can and you're not, you're not working at it. It just happens. That's, that's a perfect point. There is a point there that happens when there is the same level of self-esteem of the conscious mind being in there. The conscious mind is one, one thought at the time. So when that is positive and when the, the subconscious, that's where you get all of the skills taken care of, all, all what you can't think at, at once, like, well, the position of your mouth and your fingers and this. When all of that just naturally happens is when you feel completely at ease. But what we, what we tend to do when we practice is put a lot of time into our practice, just the, the technique and the, when we think we're we're doing the best thing we could do for our excerpts and spend four hours a day and on those, we put a lot of time on that's what we we call that subconscious aspect. So we are trying to get the skills, but at the same time, we people tend, or I did at least, to destroy the self-esteem and the self-image. Yep. So that creates a gap and that gap eventually affects the conscious mind too because you're saying the blah 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 that you can't stop so we're actually being completely unproductive and the day we have to perform we wonder why it didn't go well and why we don't find that zone so i i don't tend to to accumulate that many hours but i need to find the right balance between finding a way to fix the things that are objective, obviously. I will have to perform the same way everyone does and have the same technique as everyone and, and find the same good intonation, good sound. That's for everyone. So, But I am very conscious of what I do when I practice to keep these three things balanced. And that mental game, if it's not taken care of, there is no way we can have any good results. So... That's why I tend to to approach practicing much differently. So I I protect the result that I keep visualiz like the visualization is very important in the breathing and and how how I know that I can feel because I, as I said that's something that is being rehearsed as well. So by the time I had to perform or audition and I had changed my way of approaching practicing. I went from not passing any rounds to being either on trial or winning. There was no middle. And I was the same person, the same skills, the same approximative talent. So that's what made a difference for me just to, to be forced to re-explore my way of of practicing which means also sometimes doing things untraditionally and in being okay with understanding what doesn't work for me that works for everyone else and and it's okay if i if my mind doesn't is not engaged 
I'm not going to do a certain things that everyone says it's great. Like I do not play scales. I do not play long tones ever. I don't do etudes. I don't, I don't do any of that, but I will replace it by things that are efficient for me because I'm, my mind is engaged a certain way and I will get to the same result, but I'm okay with being untraditional. I don't, I don't need to prove anything to anyone for as long as I know one I needed to fix and I know that I need to get there somehow. Yeah. I'm I, so inspired right now. This is so fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it goes back to, you know, knowing why we're doing something and not just replicating or arbitrarily holding up traditions or, you know, they're not being one recipe for success and I think you're right that practice can, if it's not done in a way that's productive, it can turn into something that causes us to fixate or self-soothe or those type of things that are ultimately harmful and work against us as a, but we say, oh, I did the three hours, so I'm doing something right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we were progressing. For sure. And then it's hard to understand why, why don't I get anywhere I'm doing Mm -hmm. and no one, there's, there's a point in the, in the career, at least where you are, when you did cross the line of being a professional, where no one is allowed to say anything to anyone. You can't just offer advice just because, and if you do, oof. So there's this, this moment when you stop having a teacher, you're by yourself, or if you become a professional, that's not, that's not a time where the conversations are the easiest to learn from each other because people keep their, what happens at home and what happens in the way they practice or in their mind is very, it's kept very closely. It's not typically a subject that is, that we want to reveal. And I don't know why, because we could learn so much from from our colleagues if it was just like traditionally accepted to talk about it. But then I see so many people who just completely wonder why is it that they they put all this work and they don't get where they need to to be. They they don't perform well, and it would be so simple if we could just sit down and, and exchange the way we approach things and, and, and accept to go in a very uncomfortable zone. Because when we do change the way we, we have approached practicing, there is a moment of limbo there that is absolutely scary until you confirm that the, the, the other way is more efficient, but you, you have to accept that it might not work and you might not win. But I was at that point, I was ready and I am still in that mindset. I was ready to, to accept the, the discomfort of that limbo to test other things that were not necessarily done around me and that I didn't see a million people talking about. Yeah, it's great not to play your scales. Like I don't hear, I don't hear that, but I was thinking I cannot accept to to disconnect from music that much because I I know that what brought me here ultimately is because as a kid I was complete as I said I was completely connected with music the way not even my bassoon it was just at that point it was tango 
I, I needed to, even through the way of practicing, not dissociate and just become some type of machine, even, even if it's for three hours. Three hours is a lot. That's a, a lot of the time. And that's the moment we we sit down to to think about the the, few, the goals we have, which means the future, and which means that the future life we want to have. If that's disconnected from what the flame to begin with is, I don't see, I personally don't see the point. I need to, to make sure that within that process, I keep always my connection to, to music to begin with, to how I love to do what I do and how I love to connect with others when I do it. Because also I, I realized through not doing the practicing the way I, I just get in my head and the more I get in my head, the more it's difficult to play with others and to share. So I, it, it becomes a very selfish type of playing where you're only thinking, what is my voice and what is my way of interpreting and, and how am I going to be better than in this competitiveness that can become toxic? So now I'm at that point, I'm thinking a lot more about how do I enjoy this as much as I can with the best result I can, but with sharing it with the most amount of people, because ultimately we're playing for people, for the audience, but for our colleagues, and we have to play with them. So we have to be in a mindset where we are able to share. And I wasn't in that mindset for a long time. I was still matching them. I'm matching their intonation and their articulation, but that's not enough. I needed to get out of my funk, to be able to make music with my colleagues. And now I'm at a point where I think I can do that and where I see them react and I see this dialogue with people around me. And, and that, that adds to the flame and it adds to a, is there a contagious? So I know that this has an impact on others. So it is a personal duty for me to, to have this rapport with music in a way that I can show up at my best and influence and receive what others have to, to give too. So it, the experience is a million times better like, like that. That's just so inspiring. And I love that you were able to bring it back to what ultimately was important to you from the beginning. Um, because you're right, we do kind of get lost and we do beat ourselves up and, it it becomes a a slog and uh <laughs> it's it's tough it's a tough journey but it's so inspiring to know that you felt so free to find your own way out of that which took time but yeah and it's still in progression like i i will change it and if you ask in 3 years i will probably do stuff much differently but it's it's a in progress search for how to get to the best level with the most amount of of joy mm -hmm. when, yeah. when something removes the joy is a no-no i yeah. don't continue doing it yeah so you mentioned that after adopting this approach your auditions and musical endeavors were a lot more successful could we hear about the day that you auditioned for and won your position in the Nashville Symphony? Yes. So that was another another one of those days where you kind of know, not, not necessarily that you're going to win, but that you're in a state where things are going to go well. 
because I, I had auditioned for, for Atlanta principal bassoon and I was on trial and they picked Andrew Brady, who's unbelievable of a player. And I'm, I respect him so much. So great. It was a great decision of theirs, but that was very soon. Uh, that audition was very soon after I, I was even testing that new way of practicing. So I remember in that audition, having to, to artificially generate confidence. Mm -hmm. I was still going to that little mirror in the, in the, in the bathroom, like you can do this, like just overly (laughs) done. I, the mix of, of fear in there was a little in, in the excitement, there was maybe a little bit too much fear still. So when it did, I did well, I was on trial, they picked somebody else, but that gives you the, the little push, like, okay, I think I can do, I can do better. And the audition for Nashville was very soon after that one was in September of 2016, uh, 15. And then in 2016, it was the one in January, January 9th, I think for Nashville. So that was my, my revenge in my mind against the, just myself, like the process. I was like, okay, this time I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe in my system. And I'm going to go with more confidence. And by then, I didn't have to artificially provoke it. I I was very comfortable with my approach to to building like the system of how I wanted to build that addition, where my mind was. And I I didn't know about beta blockers then. So I was just completely sober. I went just the way I was. <laughs> Which now I'm like, I'm like crazy, everyone. <laughs> but I was so completely at ease. I remember playing the semi-run, some stuff happened. It wasn't horrible, but I remember that. Not, and then the final was just an entire list. And I just couldn't wait to present all of these, the, the plans, like the musical things. I was following my musical ideas. I wasn't trying to win, really. I was just excited to turn phrases a certain way and, oh, they were going to love this. Instead of being like, oh, are, are they going to like me? What if I do something they don't want? Like, I was in the opposite mindset, like, they're going to love this. And, and I just remember playing one excerpt after the other and thinking is the same process that we all think is so hard. It's so completely, sometimes it's cruel. The audition system is very difficult. It is difficult. There's nothing easy about it, but when you're in it and it's going well, you're like, Oh, this is not that bad. It's not, you're just presenting what what you're very passionate about. And that's a little recital at the end because it's really 45 minutes of playing. And it was with no curtain at the time. So you have little, a little audience, which is the same thing I was drawing when I was a kid. Like that, I'm living my dream right now. Like, this is great. So <laughs> then I remember waiting for the results. And at that time, just knowing, okay, I think 
I think this is it. I think, I'll... and then they announced my name. And after that, I, I realized, where am I? I went on the map of the US. They're like, where is this? <laughs> because I just remember, of course, when you're, when you are in, in audition mode, you just take whatever edition is on the newspaper. Like you, when you see on Nashville, okay, I'm going to buy a ticket to Nashville. I'm going to try to win Nashville. Not because uh, something in Nashville was so attractive. I didn't even know where I was. I, I opened <laughs> the map like, oh, okay. I called my parents. I won this. And, and my mom like, are you serious? Like just realizing, realizing, okay, I'm moving here. And then I realized, okay, I'm in, in the middle of a country like it's country music. I, I didn't know. <laughs> I'm like, okay, like now the culture shock is happening. Like this is my life now. And I, because we're chasing this goal of I need to win, you forget about everything else that comes with that. Like when you do win, your life is now something else. Now you have to say bye to your family, to your culture, to your language, to everything. And you have to adapt to this new world and you you have no I had no clue what I was signing up for zero I just wanted to win and test my test my system and do better and now all of a sudden I'm I'm in the principal of of a section in a beautiful hall with colleagues that I can build with that I'm going to see for the next how many ever years and I didn't know what it meant back then. I just knew that, okay, now I, I succeeded. And then that same, before I moved to Nashville, I took my suitcases to audition for principal in Santa Fe Opera. So I was moving to Nashville through that audition. And I missed my flight because I was saying bye to my mom for too long. So I went back. <laughs> I bought another ticket to Santa Fe, another nine hundred dollars, and and by then, those opera excerpts are so freeing because we never, I mean, I I never really, except for that one audition I did in, in DC Opera, I was very unfamiliar with those type of excerpts, and they're so they have so much life and character to it. Is in high altitude. It's not the easiest to to audition when you don't know where you are. You're complete high altitude. Your reads don't work. I was playing on some other people's read because mine wouldn't work there. <laughs> and, I, and that's another thing too. I have no shame in saying I want so many things in other people's reads. I love that. It's <laughs> funny. It's like, and it's okay because it, do what it takes to win or to do well. <laughs> And I have no issue. My dignity is completely untouched. <laughs> so, so I ended up winning that job too. So when I started Nashville, I started what now is my is my routine of spending from September to June here as a principal in an orchestra setting, and then the rest of the year principal in an opera in the opera in Santa Fe, and doing chamber music also in, in Santa Fe. So I'm. All of a sudden, I had more than I even imagined because I have this balance of orchestra, opera, and chamber music that just is served from nothing, from being the same person unemployed before, from exp- for experiencing all these changing changes in my self-image and changing how I practice to eventually getting a life 
that I couldn't dream of. Like it, it was just, it just happened. And now I feel super grateful to have a little bit of each and never get tired of anything because it keeps me on my, like playing five operas in the summer. Mm. It's unbelievable. If I did that all year long, I don't know if I could, but it's the best music on earth. It's amazing. But then you play it just for 10 weeks and you come back to something else and mm -hmm. it keeps you awake and keeps you motivated and, and, and enthusiastic about what you do because there is variation there. Would you share with us a favorite memory of a past performance? Yeah, so that one is, for me, that, that one is easy because when I was here in Nashville for the for my first year, they of course plan all these big, huge solos for for the probation time. So I was playing the Rite of Spring that week and I was already thinking, Ooh, this is a lot. It's the Rite of Spring in my face. They put my face everywhere. I was on billboard. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of pressure. I'm not used to that. So thinking that well, that was kind of my climax. Wow. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm being called in the, in the music director's office. And I'm like, Oh, it's not, I don't know what that is. I just went not knowing what the conversation would be like. And I was thinking it's about the, the solo. Well, that was my first year. And he tells me right before those performances, he's like, well, next year there was a gala, which is every September, the opening concert of the year. It, they invite some big personality, a huge name. And in it's just one night, but it's the gala concert. And he said, John Williams is coming. It's that was his only time coming to Nashville, first and last time so far. And he said he wants you to play the his concerto, the bassoon concerto. I was like, oh, okay. He will be there. He'll be conducting. So I said yes to that. And that was my probation time still. Like I, that September, the, the next September, I was like, okay, this is amazing. I got to perform the John Williams Five Sacred Trees with, so that's the only piece that he did not conduct in the program because he is, it's a lot to conduct. But he was sitting with his big score in front of me for the rehearsals. Then before the show, before the concert, he calls, John Williams calls me in his little, he was eating a banana, like it's some completely traditional old person, just normal. And he he calls me in there and, and he calls, oh, my angel, would you mind changing the cadence? I don't like what I wrote anymore. That was 30 minutes before I had to go and it was live performance with John Williams there. It was recorded on the radio live. I was completely unsure. I mean, I was thinking that's my, if I do something stupid, my, my tenure is bye-bye. Like, but <laughs> of course you're like, of course, tell me what to do. He changed his, he, he just removed some stuff. He, so he was writing on my part, all what he wanted me to, because it's just bassoon solo. There's no orchestra as a cadenza in the beginning of the concerto. So he was 
listening to the concerto while it was happening in, in the side of the backstage. That's the moment where I felt the best in my life playing. It, it was so, my parents were there, so meaningful that I could play for them, for an entire hall that, that it was just the music of John Williams, so a, a hall that was overly enthusiastic. In a moment where everything was, I was in shape, completely in shape, I was, completely at peace with everything. I wasn't nervous at all. I don't know why I should have been, but no, I was enjoying the very moment. And then when he came on stage after the performance, that was the first time that the audience saw him because then he would, he would be there in the second half to, to conduct his own music of movie music. So I got to experience standing in front of the audience, the explosion of screams that I don't think any ro like Rolling Stone experienced something like it was unbelievable. <laughs> the love that John Williams received that was mm, it was a ball of screams and enthusiasm. So then I realized I'm not from, of course, I mentioned, I'm not from here. So I didn't really understand that all of the John, John William music is the soundtrack of all these people, of the, from when they're kids to now. So mm -hmm. those people, or I see them, they're adults, they're of various ages, but it's the little kid in them that is completely screaming because they're seeing this idol and they're, they remember all those scenes and all those movies that marked their lives. And so the meaning for them was very different than for me. For me, it was like, wow, this Williams is so, is, is a very incredible presence in, in, in music in general, like what a chance to work with him. But I didn't have this emotional, irrational connection that they had because I didn't really grow up watching those movies. But when I felt that on stage, I just realized, okay, that was the arrival point <laughs> in my life. This is <laughs> amazing. And he was telling me, there are pictures that were taken. He was telling me things. I remember them being very nice. And because of the adrenaline, I don't remember what he said. And that's something I, I hope it comes back one day as a flash, as a, <laughs> out of my amnesia, but he was talking forever. I don't know what he said, and that's, I'm curious now of, of what it was. <laughs> he was very generous of his time, very generous of his presence. This person has to fly in a in private jet because people are always waiting for him, always he's signing autographs for everyone. He never refuses to, to share with people, and, and he's in demand, obviously. And I had private moments with him and we we talked about his music i heard him sing his music his own music which made me think oh the way i interpreted it versus what he wanted is so different and you have him there you can touch him you can talk to him ask him questions that in general to have that with any composer is a privilege but for to have that with somebody like him and also experience on stage while standing there after it went really well and you're already happy to have this 
this incredible amount of, of energy coming from an audience, that's, that was unforgettable for me. Oh, cool. You'll have to go under hypnotism. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it will come out one day. And, and <laughs> the amazing thing is after that, I was applying for a, a green card and it was during COVID. It was complicated. It was, the government was not the easiest because of the whatever. Just that moment was not particularly easy for immigrants that wanted to have a green card. And for that type of green card, you need, it's called extraordinary ability. You need to have a lot of recommendation letters. And I was applying and they were saying, well, it's not, not, not enough evidence, not enough proof that I'm the only person, you're supposed to be the only person in the U.S. that can do your, that job. And really anyone can do it. I'm not the only person, but you have to prove through letters and, and so the person who ended up writing my recommendation letter is John Williams. Oh my so, God. So that, I, from that experience, then I, he, he offered me, in a way, indirectly, a life in the U.S. Amazing. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? I will repeat some of what I already said. If I could go back, I would have protected my mental health and my my self-esteem a lot more at a younger age if if you're going to go through this path it's not necessarily an easy path and that's like anything else it's also very rewarding but it involves failing a lot it involves being around people who will not always believe in you or, or treat you well or support you and ver versus other moments where you, where you have all of that where you have people who pour into you and both are both are true but ultimately that path and journey is done by yourself and with yourself so within this last decade because i graduated 10 years ago and before that, I had started the bassoon 10 years before that as well. So many things change in the people that enter your life and exit your life and, and pour into you and inspire you. All of, all of that is amazing. And we're all lucky to, to run into different artists, players or parents or mentors that are, will be there to help us. But the one thing that people cannot solve because of course you can have advice for making your reads better and you can have great advice to to practice but but they can't solve this one thing and that's how you talk to yourself and that needs to be solved by you and protected by you for your entire life because you are the only person that is behind the screen and is talking to yourself and is believing in yourself or not at that moment. And that's, there is no success at all without being so completely sure of what you have to offer and a clear plan of how you're gonna get there, but also especially how, how you're going to be gentle and, and, 
protective of your own mind so you can experience what you need to experience success failure uh, being in that limbo I was talking about and always be in a safe place within those dark moments but create that safe place for yourself it's not always easy to do but it's something that can be can be practiced and can be changed and can be ultimately completely solved and there is a there is a a place where when you do solve these things it affects your entire life as well it's not just bassoon related so as a young person yes dream and dream continue to dream big and continue to to be inspired by your colleagues especially be curious and try new things just continue to look up to people and anyone has something that you can't do or that you don't do well and that they can share with you and you can learn from pretty much anyone even when you travel and and you I, I sometimes I learn from kids and I learn from I don't know I go to Cuba I go to and I learn from from the people that you don't you don't think you're going to learn from but when you are in available and observant and ready to receive you're also ready to give as well but within that dream know that it's not going to be a a line a linear path is it might take a long time and it might not take a long time that's you will never know and that's not a, like i was saying like there is no recipe that you went to that school you're supposed to be in a certain position right away there's none of that everyone will reach what they're supposed to reach at at the moment that we're there already but within that journey there are certain things that need to be protected and for me those two things are the connection with music and the connection with that that non-toxic way of talk, talking to ourselves that that is safe positive and connected and and that allows you allows you to be curious just like a little kid when little kids are secure you see them playing you see them go a little bit away and they turn to see if their mom is still there and when they see that they're that it's fine they continue to play and they they reach out to others when the kid is insecure they need their mom they don't do anything is this we are big big kids in a way so we have to calm ourselves and be there for ourselves first so we can explore and we can be curious and we we can connect and that's that's something that should be way above how many hours do you practice how do you practice what do you do how are your, are your reads that's completely secondary because you can't you can't really genuinely dream when you know that you don't have what it takes within you to continue taking a step ahead in front like one one more step so when you feel stuck is is not the context it's not because additions are cruel it's not because it's so hard to get into that school it's because we're in, internally stuck so it's okay to to ask for help it's okay to to go and and, and really explore that 
not so nice. It's hard to face it. It's a little bit of a dark place, but that's where the, the key is going to be as a young person and also as an adult. But I wish I had done it before. Julia, thank you so much. I know I needed to hear that. And a lot of our listeners needed to hear that. So thank you so, so much for being so generous and honest with us on Double Redish. This was a true blast. I'm so happy I get to spend this hour with you guys. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for seven years of podcasting. Thank you for being patient when we don't know what vocals are made out of. And (laughs) thank you for rating and subscribing (laughs) and uh, following us on social media. We love you. We're thankful for you. Uh, Galit, who's coming up on the next episode? We had an amazing conversation with Kristen Letterman, assistant professor of oboe at Arkansas State University. Jackie, it's time to end this nerd parade, learn what vocals are made out of, and go make reads. I still don't know what they're made out of, but I feel like I'm closer to knowing. (laughs) Somebody's going to tell us. Go make, yes. Uh, Okay, bye. (laughs)